Word of Fieldstone, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here and, and uh, appreciate you joining us this morning. I know many of you would rather be in the woods hunting. Um, I can't say that that's me. Um, actually, it was a beautiful morning. I'd love to be in a tree right now. But uh, today we are kicking off a new series on one chapter of the Bible. We're going to spend the next five weeks on Romans chapter 8. Um, and really diving in, and some of you are thinking, man, five weeks on one chapter? Romans is one of those books where some people, they'll do a series on Romans and they'll spend like seven and a half years doing it because there's just so many rabbit trails, so much stuff. And, and just kind of as a warning, Romans is one of those books that's a little bit intimidating. If you've never uh, dived into it, I encourage you to give it a, give it a go because there's, there's so much depth, there's so much there, there's so many rabbit trails you can take and there, there's so much meat when it comes to our faith and, and, and our theology. But at the same time, as much as it's intimidating and confusing at times, it's very educational and very encouraging um, when read in, in the right context. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And, and so we're going to be spending time in Romans 8, which is kind of a, kind of a turning point of the book, kind of a, uh, almost a pinnacle of the book in many ways. And in my opinion, it's, it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. I, I love to read it. I love to go back to it. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks there. Um, uh, but just to kind of lay a little bit of foundation for that chapter, because we got to know where it falls. We got to know uh, its place in the book, uh, what, what's happening leading into that chapter, what's happening coming out. And so we'll lay a bit of a foundation there. But Really what's happening is, is, is this is a letter written by Paul to believers in Rome. And so the context in which this is happening is the gospel is spreading out into the known world, out from its normal places, out from really, it, it began in a very Jewish-centric area. It started out of Jerusalem and started to blossom out of there. Um, and so the gospel now is going into different places, new places, outside of that epicenter. And so it's in Rome, and, Ro- and Paul is writing this letter And Rome is really the center of the cultural world, center of the modern world at this time, and overseen by the reign of Caesar, an egomaniac, a false god, someone who's raised himself up as a god. Um, And so if you're going to struggle as a believer in the first century, it's going to be in a place like Rome. And so Paul is writing this letter to these people who have heard the message, who have accepted the gospel and are are trying to follow Christ, but they're doing it in a very difficult place. Um, And it takes very little research to realize that Rome has a lot of similarities to the culture that we live in today. Um, Technological advancements beyond the rest of the world, uh, more resources than anyone else, the best education of anyone else, uh, a stronger army than anyone else. Their their military was unquestioned. But then if you read Romans chapter 1, you start to find out that their culture, the people were engaged in every form of sin imaginable, and not only engaged in it, but celebrating it as the way to live. Right? And you can probably see some parallels with, with American culture in these days. And it, not only in the midst of that sin, you've got various acceptable religions coming together with all their different ideas and thoughts kind of forming this culture. And so there's different views on, on, uh, on work, different views on life and family and purpose and even the afterlife. And that's all kind of coming together in a melting pot that is Rome. And so up to this point, in most first century contexts, um, Christianity and churches are being planted in a Jewish context, right? P- people who have grown up like church kids, right? They, they have the Old Testament as a foundation. And, and with that foundation, if you start talking about Jesus, they might not get the name, but they'll understand the idea of a Messiah, of someone who was to come, a savior that was coming to rescue people. And so they have those basics. And along with, with that foundation, 
they understand things like family values and morality and sexual purity. These weren't new ideas to them. So they're simply translating their understanding of religion and morality from their Jewish roots into this new Christian faith. And so it wasn't a big of a stretch. But then you put that, all of that into Rome in this, in this worldly culture, it's pretty radical stuff. And so because it's radical, you have two things going on. You have the potential for a lot of life change because as this truth, as, as the gospel hits fresh ears, it can upset their apple cart. They're hearing something revolutionary, something that can completely transform their lives. But on the other side, because it's radical, there's also potential to anger a lot of people. You can upset neighbors, coworkers, bosses, authority figures. And so this is hitting uh, a different kind of a place. It's hitting believers that haven't grown up with the same foundation. And so they're asking questions that feel basic, but to them are brand new. And Paul is trying to shed some light on this. They're saying, hey, how do we treat people? What does God say about sex? How do we interact with family? How do we interact with authority figures in a secular culture? How, how, do, we, how do we show love and respect when we're dealing with people of various social and economic classes? And so in some ways, Romans becomes that book, it becomes that letter that sheds light on what we as Christians are supposed to think about different issues that come up. There's some of those key topics. And honestly, if, uh, there are times when Christians get the reputation as only speaking up about things that they're against, like, that's bad, we don't like that, we're against that. Some of that reputation comes from Romans because a lot, a lot of our doctrine is in there this is what you're supposed to think about this. This is what God says about this. And so topics come up, things like, uh, what's the role of the Old Testament law in our New Testament faith? What happens to babies who die? What, what's, what's the balance between predestination and free will? How do we interact with government? How do we interact with other authorities? That Romans addresses topics like homosexuality and, and things like that that are hot-button issues, but then it takes those hot-button issues that feel like a really big deal, and then it takes other things like gossip and disobeying your parents, and it levels them off onto the same playing field. And so it addresses those big things and says, here's how as believers you should feel and interact with this topic, but here's a topic that you don't want to think about, and I need to elevate that to a bigger deal. And so it kind of addresses all of those things, but in the midst of that, even though it addresses do's and it addresses, don't, it addresses don'ts, this isn't some manifesto of what you're supposed to vote about, who you're supposed to boycott when you disagree with them. Like, it doesn't get into those things. This is a letter that's written with a bigger picture in mind. Paul is seeing these believers dealing with a difficult situation without the same foundation that many believers had grown up with, and he's trying to address, here's some foundation, here's how we're supposed to deal with it, and as you go through everyday life, here's some things that you need to be thinking about and how you should feel about them. So, so that's kind of the background. And Romans, were, I need to do an extreme oversimplification uh, to kind of summarize the book of Romans for us, okay? Because uh, as I said, we need, to we need to know where chapter 8 fits into the whole thing. Um, and so as I said, we could spend, uh, there's verses in Romans that you could do multiple sermons on, but we're not going to get that deep. So if you want to dive deeper and deeper, just Google Romans and you'll have all the rabbit trails you want to travel down and just have a lot of fun with that. But for our purposes today, we're just going to kind of give you four major sections of Romans so we can see how this thing is laid out. So first section is chapters one through three. We're going to call that section sin. In those first uh, few chapters, Paul begins to paint a picture of what humans are really like because as he lays it out, it becomes very clear, and I think we can all agree just in what we see around us and see in our own lives, that at our core and in practice, we're pretty messed up. 
Humanity is a mess. Uh, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, this is how he lays it out. It says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have, have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their thoughts are open graves. It starts to get really descriptive of what our, our situation is like in humanity. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They ruin and, uh, ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace. They do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And jump down to verse 23. This is the verse some of us grew up learning in Sunday school. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In summary, we are broken. We are broken. Our way is not God's way. And in breaking away from his way, we sin and we stand in need of major, major help. And Paul lays out some examples of where people have gone, where societies have gone. He says, just look around. It's a mess. Humanity needs help. And he, and he lays that groundwork for section two, which is chapters four through eight. And we're going to call that salvation. Because here, he not only addresses the issue, he addresses what we really need as a solution to that issue and talks about what God has done to provide that solution. So in Romans, going over to chapter 5, verse 6, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were at our worst, when we were sinful and broken, Christ died for the ungodly. Jumping down to verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, when we didn't deserve it, when we were living the depravity of chapters 1 through 3, Christ died for us. In our mess, in our weakness, with no way to fix it ourselves, even with the law. Because some of these people reading it are going to be Jewish transplants, and they're thinking, well, I grew up with the Old Testament. I've been following the commandments. I'm good. Paul says, no, even the law is not good enough. That's not going to fix the issue. That's not the solution to the need. The solution is Jesus in dying for us on the cross. So we got the sin section, we have salvation, and then we hit section 3, chapters 9 through 11. We're going to call that sovereignty because right away in chapter 9, God says, hey, it's all on me. I can do what I want, when I want, I can include whoever I want, and you're basically just a lump of clay waiting for me to come around and mold it into what I want it to be. And then in chapter 10, he says, okay, now I'm in charge, I'm in control, I have a plan, but I want you to be a part of it. I want the world to know me. I want them to experience my salvation. And guess what? I want you to be the one that tells them. I want you to be the one that shows them. And so he, he takes control, expresses his plan and his sovereignty, but softens it by saying, you're a part of this deal. This is, you're included in this. And then in chapter 11, he says, this plan is, even though you can't see it, even though it may frustrate you, it may bother you that I'm in control. Chapter 11, he says, even those who are unreachable, even those who are undeserving, those who are so far from being, design, from being who I designed them to be, I want to bring them in and give them this gift too. And so even though you may not like being in, not, uh, even though you may not like that I'm in charge, you may not like that you don't have a lot of control, my plan is bigger than what you think. And those people that I say are far away, those people that I say can't measure up, they're the ones I want to bring in and include in this. And so it may be tough to accept, but God is in control and he has a perfect plan that goes beyond our understanding. Then he wraps it up the last four or five chapters with what we'll call the service section. 
Because what Paul does in those last few chapters, he said, okay, I've told you about the sin. I've, I've drawn your attention to the mess around us, the mess that's inside each of us. And I've presented to you the solution. And if you've accepted that solution, what does a life transformed by the solution look like? And we can go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And he starts to, to lay the framework for, for what he means there. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of this amazing gift that he's offered us, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. You're out of the chaos now. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to experience the brokenness anymore. Don't be, trans don't be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if you're in, if you accept this truth and you believe it in your heart, now what I want you to do is not just rest in that, but now act on it and offer your mind and your body and your life and be different. Don't conform, but be transformed by God to be more like Christ. And to summarize all of those four sections, basically throughout this book, God is saying, this is about me. Life is supposed to be about me. Anything contrary to that is sin, and your sin is an offense against me, and the only solution is through me, and that solution glorifies me. And your life in the midst of that solution is only lived through me, and your life should glorify me, and your goal is to look more and more like me. And so God makes it very, very clear what's going on here. And so that's, that's the kind of the encompassing idea of the book of Romans. And so we jump into chapter 8, and as we keep those things in mind, um, we step into a pretty interesting situation right in the first verse. But if we would, let's pray. God, thank you for um, uh, some of these reminders. And as we dive in, God, over the, these next four or five weeks, I pray that you would root up the things that need to be rooted up um, grab our hearts in the way they need to be grabbed. And God, in addition to maybe new information or additional knowledge that may be gained from a book like this, God, um, I pray that at the core of the time that we spend together this month uh, would be opportunities to become more and more like your son. Uh, make that the end goal, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So you don't have to spend a lot of time working with people to understand that there's often a pretty decent gap between what they think of themselves and what we think of them, right? Uh, and and you, it can kind of go both ways. Some people elevate themselves. Some people push themselves down too far. Um, and I think this is illustrated pretty well in the diversity of cooking shows on TV. Um, Joe's not here, so I can make fun of him all that I want. Uh, but Joe, by the way, Joe just got married yesterday. Super excited for him and, and for Leah, who's going to be joining us. Um, she's actually way more awesome than Joe is. And so if you like Joe... <laughs> You're really going to like Leah. Um, but anyway, so uh, uh, when Joe and I are here during the week uh, at lunchtime, if he's eating something, he likes to throw in his headphones and watch um, shows like Hell's Kitchen with Dave Ramsey where he's just hammering people and they're cooking. But the thing that's most entertaining about that show is that you have these chefs, you have these restaurant owners that just think they're amazing. Like they, they're like, uh, they, they, they throw their best steak at them, they throw their best Mexican dish, they throw some sushi, and they're like, this is my best dish. You are going to love, you know, and then they just love, they're like, come and eat my food. And they think they're going to be the one chef in the world who can impress Dave Ramsey. But Dave Ramsey walks in and he sees the food and he's like, 
I don't know if I want to eat that. And then he eats the food, and he's like, I wish I hadn't eaten that. And he just trashes these people. And there's this major conflict because they think they're amazing, and he thinks they're terrible. And that creates some great television. There's a little bit of cussing, but, you know, Joe is still growing, so, you know, he still watches that garbage. But it's really entertaining. It's really entertaining because of that gap between how they see themselves and how they're seen by someone else. But on the flip side of that, my kids love to watch the, the Kids Baking Championship. I don't even know what channel it's on, but we'll sit down and watch that thing. And the, that gap exists, but it's the complete opposite. You have these kids in this first episode, and they're like 9, 10, 11 years old, and they don't think they're any good. Like they've done some cooking with mom, and, and they dive in, and they, all of a sudden they start getting these assignments, and they're making these cakes and these other dishes, and they're doing really well. And so they view themselves as not very good, and they have these really encouraging, positive judges saying, you did great. Like you can do a little better here and try this next time. But it was delicious. It looks great. Really proud of you. And it's this encouraging atmosphere. And that's just as entertaining because of that same gap, except it's a different kind of a gap. And that extends to kids working on their homework. I watch my kids. Uh, they think they can't get it, and then they do. Or they think it's going to be super easy, and then they struggle through it. So you, you watch a kid their first time doing a sport. You, you watch an adult trying to decide if they should go for the interview or not. And you see that interesting gap between how they evaluate themselves and how others are evaluating them. And that applies to our spiritual side of life as well. There's people probably sitting in this room thinking, I'm fine, I'm good enough. And then you've got some people sitting in this room thinking, I am a mess. I am unworthy. I, if I walked into church, I thought I was going to burst into flames. And you're amazed that you're still alive right now, right? So that's often how we approach the work of Jesus and any sin that's in our lives and even sin that's in our past. Some thinking, I'm fine, and maybe I'm not, and some thinking I'll never be good enough when maybe you can be. And the reality is both of those are true, but what both of those things require is someone from the outside to step in and course correct and realign our thinking a little bit. And Paul struggled with that. And as we're going to see, uh, we're going to jump into to chapter 8 in just a second, but we have to go to the end of chapter 7 to really get a feel for what Paul's mindset is going into chapter 8. Because he's dealing with that tension of how he's viewing himself versus what maybe God is saying about him. So uh, jump to Romans chapter 7. We'll start in 15. And I want to promise you, Paul is brilliant. He's highly educated. He's well-spoken. Probably uh, smarter than he would even brag about. But these few verses, he's going to feel like kind of a raving lunatic a little bit. Like you can see, he's really struggling. So 7.15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Jump to verse 17. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Are you, you following me? Excellent. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work that's within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? This guy is struggling. This famous 
missionary, this man who wrote so much of the New Testament is dealing. It's almost like he's going through all this content in Romans and he's laying out what he's seeing and the sin in the world and the decay of culture. And then he, he gets a little bit more inspirational. He's like, listen, there's a solution for this. God knows we're messed up. And even in our mess, he's provided a solution in Christ. And he's kind of reliving the tension that he's seen around the world. And he saw the mess around him, but he also knew that his own heart was bent toward the same things. It's almost like Paul saying, my gosh, even as I write this, I I feel the battle within my own heart. It's not just you, Gentiles. It's not just you, Jewish believers. It's all of us, and it's me. And even as we pursue Christ, sin has made a mess of all of us. Even as I pursue Christ, sin has made a mess of me. And I love how Paul does this at different points in some of the letters that he writes. He'll get really intense and get into it, and he's like putting out some really good stuff. Here's this and this and this. You should think about that, and this is super important. Here's some really good stuff. This will really lay a foundation for your faith, and here's some doctrine. But before he continues on, you can almost see him stop himself. He said, before I get too deep, before I get too practical, I need to bring it back to the basics, back to the foundation, back to the most important thing, and he brings it back to Jesus. And not only Jesus, but his personal need for Jesus. And he does that coming out of his distress in chapter 7. Remember, there's no, there's no chapter numbers in his letters. He's, this is one thought into the next. And so he comes out of this chaos, out of this frustration, out of this tension that he's seeing in his own life and the mess that he's in. And we go to uh, Romans 8.1 and he says, Therefore, based on what I just said, in, in light of all of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the gravity of that statement? Right, he's coming off of seven chapters of tension and distress. The mess in the world, the mess in his own life, the solution that's presented, and even in the midst of solution, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I shouldn't be doing, I'm just as broken. And he says there's no condemnation, and the root word there literally means to be judged worthy of punishment. And not only judged worthy of punishment, but judged worthy of punishment, especially when compared to the standard bearer. So it's not just a list of rules. He's saying compared to Jesus, I'm scum, and I deserve everything that comes my way. But he says in spite of who we are, in spite of who we are compared to Jesus, in spite of who we are in the way he described it in those first few chapters, and in spite of what we desperately need, if we are in Christ, we stand before God completely new, completely clean, completely transformed, sinless in his sight. And in the next couple of verses, we find out why. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did it by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Now that's a mouthful. But why are we sinless in his sight? Because Jesus stood in the gap for us and set us free from the law of sin and death. So Justin, what's the law of sin and death? We're just digging a deeper hole, right? What's the law of sin and death? Basically it's this, nothing short of perfection can gain us access to God and his heaven. 
He cannot welcome sin into his presence, and all of us fall short of that standard. And what we find out is that the law, whether it's the Old Testament law or anything that we see in the New Testament, the standard only exists to prove who is worthy. So he says, if you can live up to my standard perfectly, you're worthy. But if you can't live up to these simple standards and think it, they're simple. Some of them, I mean, think about just the Ten Commandments. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. That seems pretty easy, and yet half this country screws it up. Don't kill anybody. Don't steal stuff that isn't yours. These are base level things. The bar is low. And as a society, as a culture, as individuals, we can't do it. So he says, if you can't meet these simple standards, if you fall short, you are not worthy and you're condemned to death, both, physic- both physically and spiritually. And aside from that, eternal is a really big deal. Aside from that, your life here on earth will be far different than what you could experience if you were doing things my way. So all the standard does is show us how messed up we really are. That we can't even achieve a low bar that's been set for us. And so what happened? Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He lived up to the standard. And even though he lived up to the standard, he took the punishment for us. He was perfect. He was worthy. But he took on our sin and our unworthiness so that we could be worthy. And one author put it, it's amazing. He said, Christ became what we are so that we could become what he is. And this is why this this chapter, these verses, they're kind of, it's kind of a goosebumps chapter for me. And I go back to this passage all the time. If I have nothing else to read, if I'm feeling unworthy, if the devil is filling my head and heart with lies, if my flesh has once again proven to be too weak, and if I get caught up in just the work and the details and forget what this whole thing is about, it comes back to this, and this is huge. There is no condemnation for those in Christ, and that is past, present, and future. It's all covered. Christ's sacrifice was all-encompassing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 12, this is also written by Paul, and he says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. And he's hearkening back to the Old Testament days where the priest would have to slaughter a sheep or slaughter a goat or slaughter a bull and spill blood on behalf of the Israelite people and atone for their sins. And, and Paul is saying, listen, that priest, he would offer a sacrifice and it would cover the sins of the moment and then he'd have to do it again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because we continue to fail. We continue to fall short of the standard. And so there had to be a sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. And he continues and said, but this priest, Jesus, this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And verse 14 says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's so easy to get bogged down and beaten down and held back because of our failure. Just like Paul, we have those Romans 7 moments. It's like, man, I did it again. I thought I was done with it. I thought that was in my past. I thought I was through that. I just screwed up again. What is wrong with me? And we have those Romans 7 moments, but we can push ourselves back to Romans 8.1 and back to Hebrews 10.14. And I need you to hear this. If, If you've been sleeping, wake up. This is it. It's paid for. 
It's forgiven. You are free. In Jesus, you stand before God perfect. That righteous requirement of the law, that standard that had to be met, has been met on our behalf now and forever. So I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Give yourself fully to Jesus. If you've been waiting, if you walked in here without him, it's time. It's not about trying to live right. It's not about being good enough. It's not about living up to a standard, trying to prove yourself, because guess what? You can't. You can't. So it becomes all about faith. Simply saying, I believe. In some services, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to pray with me. You don't, need my, you, don't, you don't need me to pray with you. It's simply saying, man, God, I, I recognize this. I believe this. I see it in myself. I've lived it. I hate it. I'm done. I believe. I believe you sent your son. I believe he's that perfect sacrifice. And I give you my heart now. It's as simple as that. Give yourself fully to Jesus. And many of you, I know, as I look out, you were, maybe you're like me, you were that Sunday school kid and it's been part of your life forever. Maybe you got saved as an adult and you're just, you know, still growing and things. But I want to encourage you, once we've placed our trust, once we've given ourselves fully to him, it's time to let it go. Let it go. There might still be practical consequences that we're dealing with, results of decisions we've made in the past, decisions we've made recently, still memories of mistakes in our lives. I have to deal with those, right? I might have to walk through those and yet deal with them knowing that the sin is covered and the penalty is removed. Even preach to yourself, right? In, in Romans 8, that Romans 8, 2, we were reading, and the way they phrase it is actually, they, they, they made it fit the context where, it's saying, where, where Paul is saying, hey, it, it set you free from the law of sin and death. But if you really look at what he's saying, he's really saying me. He says, he set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul is preaching to himself, coming out of chapter 7. He's in a mess. He's frustrated. He's angry at himself. And then he preaches to himself, I am set free. I'm forgiven. You've got to forgive yourself because Jesus already has. It's paid for. There is zero condemnation. Walk in the freedom that comes with that forgiveness. And not only the freedom, but the blessing that comes with that forgiveness. The band is going to come and, and they're going to close with one more song. But real quick, Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. In Christ, that's you. It's covered. It's a beautiful thing, and so it's time to rest in it. It's not about how you evaluate yourself, good or bad. It's not about that gap between what you say and what others say and what you say and what God says. It's simply about what Jesus has done. And because of your acceptance of that gift, it's about what God says about you. Let's stand and pray as we get ready to sing this last song. Father, um, uh, it's such a simple thing. It, it, and yet, God, the, the gravity of what you've done is sometimes just too big to get. And so, God, I pray that in our hearts for, for each one, simplify it for each one of us. God, in, speak to our hearts with the words and the message that we need to fully grasp what you've done and what you offer.
God, I pray if there's anyone here who has never accepted that gift, that you would tug on their heart and let them know it's time, God. And for any currently on that road and walking with Jesus and fighting that battle and going through the Romans 7 moments, God, give us that Romans 8, 1 moment to know we're free. There's no condemnation. God, thank you for that promise. Thank you for that gift for each one of us. Amen.